certainly excited to see a, a whole generation of musicians coming up. That's exciting to me. I love music, and uh, you don't get to see it, most of you, on uh, Wednesday night, but we have a, a worship team for Awana, and it's uh, mostly all young people, uh, with Raul uh, leading them, and uh, some of them are learning to play as they're playing and doing a great job, and uh, someday we're all going to be out of a job, and we'll all, we'll all get to sit down there and, and shout from the back row, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, that'll be great. Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. We're working our way through uh, this passage on the uh, armor of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6. We all witnessed a miracle this week. Several tons of metal and other things floated (laughs) for a while. Uh... If you don't know what that picture is of, you haven't been watching the news too much. Uh, this airplane went down in uh, New York, uh, in the river in New York City. Went, uh, went in the river on purpose. It did not go down on purpose. Uh, took a couple of birds and the engines and uh, went down. And uh, the pilot is certainly and properly being hailed as a, a, a very excellent uh, pilot, if not a hero. When I hear the pre-flight safety speech when I'm on an airplane, it goes something like this. In the event of a water landing, your seat will act as a flotation device. Now, when I hear that, I always reflect on that speech that I heard one time on Southwest Airlines. I don't know if they still do it, but there was a period when Southwest encouraged the flight attendants to be humorous when they gave that speech, I guess to get people's attention or just to make it fun. And the flight attendant is given this speech, and he says, your airplane is capable of landing in water once. (laughs) I always think of that when I hear that speech. And I also think, is my seat really going to hold me up in the water? Wow. Well, we know that an airplane is capable of landing in water once. Did you know that on Airbus planes, one of the things they reported this week, they have a switch in the cockpit labeled ditch. Ditch to a pilot means when the the plane is not going to land in a proper way, in particular it's going to land in the water. And he pushes the switch and it closes all the holes where water can come in. Isn't that a cool thing? Uh, I don't know if it's good that they really prepared to land in the water. Uh, (laughs) Um. You know, I think most people, maybe not, but for sure me, uh, when I hear that safety speech, I'm like reading a magazine or a book. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, get this thing off the ground, because I think either it won't crash or will be obliterated. So the safety speech really doesn't matter. But it turns out the safety speech is important. They got all the people off this airplane in just a short period of time. Everything worked like it was supposed to. What do you know? Ephesians 6 is God's safety speech for you when you get up in the morning. One of my goals here is to get you to memorize this passage. I've passed out cards with the scripture on it so you can be reading it and memorizing it. We'll do that again next week. And we've been reading the scripture every day, every week. We're going to read it again. Don't look in your Bible right now. Look up here. Look up here. 
No cheating. No looking in the Bible. We're going to read the Scripture. Here we go. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." There's a little self-test for you to see how you did. Those are some of the key words. Now you work on memorizing that because you need to know this passage when you get up in the morning. And next week we're going to talk about praying this passage and uh, praying other things. But I want to encourage you to know this scripture and to live it. As we have uh, studied this in our first study, we understood that here are some of the fiery darts of Satan. He contradicts God's word. He obscures God's goodness. He short-circuits God's plans. He embezzles God's position, and he coerces God's people. Now, in saying that he does these things, we could properly say he attempts to get you to do these things. These are the fiery darts that he shoots at you. He will shoot at you a contradiction to God's word. It may come in the simplest form as this. Well, how do you know that's really the truth? And you start to think, well, yeah, you know, maybe there's more ways than one. He will contradict God's word. He will obscure God's goodness. Why would a good God let this or that happen to you? And you start to dwell on it, and pretty soon you're thinking, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm really going to follow God that closely or not. He short-circuits God's plans. That is, he tries to get you to jump ahead. God has great things planned for our lives, um, but sometimes we're tempted to get there in a hurry and not to wait for God to let the plan unfold in his way. He embezzles God's position. That is, he wants you to take glory for yourself. He wants you to be proud. He wants you to be arrogant. He wants you to be so proud that you don't follow God's truth. And lastly, he coerces God's people. That is, he uses the world system. He uses the world system to put pressure on us. In all of these tactics or methods of temptation, his goal is to get us to retreat from our growth and progress in Christ. Satan cannot possess you, Christian. The Spirit of God is in you, and there's only room for one spirit at a time. Satan cannot possess you. He cannot oppress you any more than he can oppress any other person. 
And he's only in one place at one time. But through his personal and demonic influence and through the worldly influence, what he wants to do is to get you to stop and to go backwards in your Christian life. Once you've stopped, he doesn't need to tempt you anymore. (laughs) Maybe he needs to remind you of the reasons that you stopped. But once you stop and once you go backwards, his work is done with you. He wants you to surrender the ground that you've taken in your battle for godliness and ministry. Uh, had my doctor, uh, had my, my annual physical this week, and my cholesterol went down. I'm not in the danger zone to begin with, but it still went down because I've been exercising for about 15 months, been trying to lose a little bit of weight, and I'm right at a point where I'm starting to lose ground. And I'm going to have to step up the battle to keep going in the right direction. There's always a temptation to kind of take it easy and to kind of move backward, not only physically, but spiritually. And that's what Satan wants. He wants you to take it easy. And the Christian life is not an easy life. It's a challenging life. It's a good life, but a challenging life. Satan wants you to stop, not go forward. We learned last week as we started to talk about the armor in particular, that the the waist, putting the truth around your waist, girding your waist has to do with the foundation of truth. And the breastplate is the protection that righteous living gives your life. And thirdly, the the gospel gives you traction to stand tall. This week, we are going to consider then, first of all, the covering of faith. The covering of faith. Look with me at Ephesians 6. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The, 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 the fiery darts are something I remember from childhood about learning God's truth. I, this image of, of flaming arrows, you know, caught in my mind. I, I'm afraid I didn't get too far beyond that to learn the real spiritual truth, but I always remember the fiery darts of the devil. Uh, first of all, the, the shield, and then we'll talk about the fiery darts, the shield that Paul refers to here, there's a, specific, there's a couple of words in Greek for shield, and so we know what kind of a shield he was talking about. And it's not the little round kind that they would wear like this and kind of banter about. It's a great big thing that was maybe four or four and a half feet tall and a couple feet wide. In fact, the word for shield is the same word for door because it looked like a door. And, of course, it could have been curved and it could have been, you know, had some metal on it or something to dress it up. And typically it would be a couple of layers thick and it would have the ability to absorb, uh, if you will, arrows or that sort of thing without the uh, soldier being injured. And, and, and when the Roman army fought with them, they would all get in a row if they needed to and put those shields right next to each other and crouch down. And, and that whole line of soldiers was called a phalanx. And that's the term for how they would fight. Of course, if they were going to march forward, they'd put that shield in front of them. God is telling us, By using this word, a shield, and the shield of faith, he's creating an image in us, which is this. Our faith in God and in his way is a complete covering, a complete protection for us. It's not a small, partial protection. It's not something we have to banter about. It's something that we can essentially get get inside or get behind, and nothing can penetrate. Because of this concept here, uh, of, of the largeness of the shield, and also because of the word in verse 16, above all. Above all literally means that, uh, something sort of on top of all. Because of that, I'm calling my sermon, Redoubling Your Effort. 
Do you know that the word redoubling is actually in the dictionary? I thought it was just political, political emphasis speak. But to redouble your efforts. You see, God says, look, put some things on your feet. Put truth around your waist. Get the breastplate on. Now, on top of that, get the shield of faith. There is armor, and then there's armor on top of the armor. It is a redoubling of our protection. Our faith can cover us so that no part is left exposed to injury by Satan through our giving in to temptation. Now, the artillery, what is it that Satan shoots? The word, when it says fiery darts, it literally means something that is on fire. I mean, that is the word for fire there. Pyro is the Greek word. But the word dart could mean anything thrown in warfare. Um, They didn't have so much separate words for all kinds of things, but, you know, anything that was thrown... Well, I mean, in this case, it's anything that's thrown. It's the word for throw. Anything that's thrown that's on fire... And I think there's an inference here that the idea, you know, why doesn't he say you can dodge the darts of the devil? Why does he say the fiery darts of the devil? Well, that's because Satan lives in hell. No, Satan does not live in hell, does he? Hell is Satan's destiny. Okay, Satan doesn't want to be in hell. It's a place of torment. But obviously, we we get this, this image of fire, we think, well, it has to do with fire. The image here has to do with something that is scary. Something that is scary. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about the devil. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever seen those little tests they used to give, you know, college entrance exam? In five seconds, a man-eating tiger will be led into the room. There is an M16 that is disassembled under your seat. You will have five seconds to assemble the weapon, load it, and shoot the tiger before he eats you. Okay? If we let a roaring lion into this room right now, what would happen? You'd go, what? You'd be scared. Okay? That's the image of Satan. He's a scary thing. What would it be like with a fiery arrow coming toward you? Is a fiery arrow worse than a regular arrow? I think so. That's just me. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know they say that historically the idea of the fiery arrow wasn't just to light things on fire. I, I know that's our image. Certainly they could shoot a bunch of arrows at a, at a building or something, try to light it on fire. But the fiery arrow coming toward a soldier is trying to scare him off. And what happens to the soldier who gets scared? He's there with his shield. The shield is capable of protecting him, but he gets scared and he drops the shield and runs. Now is he open to injury? That's right. And that's what Satan wants to do. You see, what, if you understand this passage and the rest of Scripture correctly, Satan cannot harm your faith. He cannot. He does not have power to change you or to make you do things. Now he can... As God allows him, he can change things in your world. But he cannot change you. He cannot affect you. And so the whole deal with Satan is a scare tactic. He wants you to drop your shield, drop your weapon, and run. Because you're afraid. The, Satan, the question Satan wants to get you to ask is this. Will my faith or my life in Christ really protect me from this 
flaming arrow, or should I put it down and run? John MacArthur said this in his commentary, every temptation, directly or indirectly, is the temptation to doubt and distrust God. The purpose of all Satan's missiles, therefore, is to cause believers to forsake their trust in God and to drive a wedge between the Savior and the saved. He even tempted God's own Son to distrust Him in the wilderness. First to distrust His Father's provision, then to distrust His protection and plan. Satan wants you to to be afraid. When stuff comes along that you can't handle, he wants you to be afraid and to run. Now, the above all, and I, I couldn't find a way to outline this, so I just put the phrase there. Look at verse 16. Above all, above all, taking the shield of faith. There's very much a visual image here. How do you grab that shield and pick it up on top of the other armor so that it protects you from the devil? How do you do that? Certainly there can be no shield of faith for the Christian without saving faith first. You cannot defend yourself against Satan's attacks until you have first believed in Christ as Savior. Faith in Christ releases all of God's power in you. If you're here today and you've never believed in Christ as your Savior, if you've never considered the truth that Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, to satisfy God's demand for payment of your sin, and that what he asks of you is to believe in that sacrifice. If you've never done that, this message won't help you. You need to get that squared away first. Then you're a child of God. Then this armor can be put on. The shield of faith can be held up. Once you have come to faith in Christ, this faith that he is speaking about is an ongoing, complete trust in God's person and plan. Hebrews 11.6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me put it this way. What you have to do to be a person who lives in faith is to say God's way is the best. When I follow God, it, there will be a reward from God. There will be a quality of life. There will be a... An, an eternal life in heaven. God's way is best. Satan wants you to say, no, God's way is not best. My way is best. This way is best. That way is best. Or is it God's way only? See, he's not talking about faith in faith. You can hear people talk about believing. You just got to believe. You got to have faith. You can hear secular people in the media and in the entertainment industry talk about that. This is not faith in faith. Well, I just got to keep believing. Believe, believe, believe. No, it's faith in someone and in his way of life. It is you saying God has revealed the path for my life. Do I believe God when he said this is the best? Either I believe it and I show that belief or that belief is, is demonstrated to be real by walking in that path or I say, you know, that's, that's okay for you, Pastor Dave. You're, you're a professional Christian, but I live in the real world. And so it's, you know, I'm going to have to cut a corner. I'm going to have to shave a point. I'm going to have to, you know, do this or do that, whatever it is. 
because, uh, you know, uh, this just doesn't work for me. Satan wants you to say, my faith is not enough. God wants you to say it is enough. Satan wants you to put down your faith. And so to do that, he shoots over an arrow of doubt that might look like this. Everyone knows there's no such thing as absolute truth. The Bible is no more important than any other book. And you start listening to that message, and pretty soon you're going, well, you know. Satan wants you to stop believing in the goodness of God. So he lets go a volley of flaming arrows, maybe like this. How can God be good if he doesn't make your life comfortable? And you start meditating on the discomfort of your life, and you think, yeah, come on, God, why don't you come through for me? And pretty soon you're angry at God, which means you're not believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and Satan has gotten you over. Satan wants you to stop believing that God's ways are best, so he shoots out a couple of hot ones like this. All that matters is that you're in love. No one waits to be married anymore. Come on. In commenting on the shield of faith, one commentator put it this way, in the case of flaming arrows, very often the arrow would snuff out as it buried itself into the thickness of the shield. During battles, these great shields would often bristle with smoking arrows like roasted porcupines. Man, I love that image. Might you be able to tell the brave soldiers from the cowardly by how many arrows are poked in their shield? We need the complete covering of faith. When, Satan, when the attacks of Satan come from the world around you, are you going to hunker down behind the Christ life and hold your ground, or are you going to drop your faith and run in some other way? We need the complete covering of faith. Fifthly, in this list of armor, we need the confidence of salvation. The helmet, obviously, the image of the helmet is something that protects your head, and we know that your brain, you know, physically your brain regulates the rest of the body. If your brain is injured, you know, you, you may very well die. And so, too, a spiritual helmet protects your mind, your spiritual mind, and it regulates the rest of your spiritual body. And God says the helmet we need to wear is the helmet of salvation. But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What God is trying to tell us, I believe, is illustrated by a familiar story from, from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. If you've, read the, if you've been in Sunday school or read the Old Testament, you'll know this one. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, this is to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the three of Daniel's friends there in, the, uh, there in Babylon in the Old Testament. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? If you don't know this story, it goes like this. This king had a vision from God, and he used it wrongly. He used it to become proud, so he built this great golden image, and it was stories tall and he said there's going to come a day when we play a big bunch of music and when that happens you bow down and worship this idol 
And these fellows said, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And so he's questioning them now. Is it true that this is, this is you're not going to do this? Now, I'm going to give you another chance, guys. If you're ready, at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? This is the image that Satan wants to create. He sends over some temptation, some pressure from the world. And we're looking at it going, oh man, I just have to have that. I have to go that way. I can't live the God way. I've got to go after this thing. Because we think God can't deliver us from this difficulty, this challenge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. I think the King James says we don't have to be careful to answer you. We can just say what's right on our mind. If that's the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They say, look, you toss us into the fiery furnace, God's going to take care of us. But if not, if not, if we don't survive... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. We will not serve those gods. He says, look, here is a pressure to be ungodly. We're not going to do it. We're not going to cave. They dug their feet in and said, we're standing our ground. Shield of faith in place. The shield of faith was, God will deliver us. You toss us, go right ahead. God will deliver us. And if God chooses not to physically deliver us, that's okay because we will not, we will not worship your image. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Satan tried to get Jesus to do? He said, I'll give you all of the stuff of the world if you will bow down and worship me. Satan's not going to come to you and say, Worship me. He's not going to do that. But he's going to essentially do that as he says, look, look at all this great stuff. You can have it. Just go for it. Don't follow the patient path with God. Just go for it now. And you have to look that right in the eye and say, you know what? I may never get this or have that or be this or be that but I am not going to bow down to you. I am going to stand here knowing that I am a child of God. I am going to stand here that knowing that God will deliver me. God will take care of me. Either God will physically deliver me, spiritually deliver me now, but I will not disobey God no matter what happens. They were so confident in God's saving care, that they were able to stand up to a satanically inspired persecution. Is that the confidence that you're wearing to protect your mind, your thoughts? Are you so focused in on what God is doing that you're saying, hey, forget that other stuff. We need, we need the complete 
covering of faith, the confidence of salvation. And part of the reason I've kind of sped on to number six is number six brings this last group of three especially together, but it also brings the whole set together. You see, we come down to this last one, which is uh, in verse 17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This, uh, some people have made a lot of hay about this and said that the armor is completely defensive except this weapon and it's offensive. No, that's not true. The word that's used to speak of this sword is the word that would refer to a short sword or something we'd call a dagger, maybe eight inches up to 16 or 18. So you, you didn't go into battle to fight the enemy with a little dagger like that. You'd have a, a big sword or a spear or you know, one of those hammer jobs or something, but you didn't go just with this. This was for personal protection, you might say, in hand-to-hand combat or in last resort. You know, military guys will carry a pistol, but it's not the primary weapon to go into battle with. It's for when you get into close quarters and you have to defend yourself. That's what it's for. And this sword is the same way. He says, this and, and, and it's also a, a unique word for the word of God. The big word that's used many times in the New Testament is the word logos or logos. In the beginning was the word, logos, and the word was with God. God calls Jesus Christ his communication to mankind. And it has to do with a whole system of communication. But the word here is the word rhema. It has to do with individual parts of the word of God. The words of God, if you will. You could even think of it as verses of scripture as opposed to the whole Bible. And he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which are the the truths of God's word, the sayings of God's word, the little pieces that we can get a hold to and apply daily in our life. This is most eloquently uh, demonstrated for us by Jesus himself. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led into the spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days, I've never even fasted for one day except when I have to go to the doctor the next day, and that's only 12 hours. 40 days he had fasted, and after that he was hungry. Believe it, folks. Jesus had a human body and a human nature, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Look at this. The devil uses the scripture. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. The devil tempts Jesus to misuse the truth of God. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus says to him, It is written, Again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
And the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, relied on the word of God and his belief in that, and he said, this is the way I'm going to live. Again, we're not believing in faith. We're believing in God. And Jesus said, here is the path that God has said I am supposed to walk on, and I will walk in it no matter what you say. That's what God wants us to do. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith, to wear the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Here is the thing that I should do. I will do this no matter the pressure I receive from other people. When Satan sends a flaming hot temptation like, I want that person to whom I am not married. Look at her. Look at him. Our reply should be, marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Or, be ye holy for I am holy. Or, drink water from your own cistern. No, that's wrong. Here's the path God has put me on. And in faith, we say no to the temptation, not just by some vague belief, but by a belief that God is good and his path is the right path. And so here it is, and I will walk on it. I believe God to provide for my needs in his best way. And when I apply God's word and believe that he will take care of me, the arrow goes and it sticks in the shield and it goes out. Unfortunately, the devil comes back again, just like he did with Jesus. In the, in the account in Luke, you know, he tempted him like this, and then it says he left him for a while. So perhaps the temptation from the devil is more subtle. There's an advertisement on TV that makes you realize how out of date your wardrobe is. Or what an uncool car you're driving. I just have to get some new stuff, but I can't afford the new stuff. And Satan says, surely God wants you to be happy. Surely God doesn't want you to look like an old fuddy-dud, does he? Only the best for God. That's the verse he'll quote. Not really a verse, but a summary of ideas. And I've heard people say those things. And you say, my God shall supply all my needs in Christ Jesus. Or you say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things, whatever I really need, it will be added to you. And thud, another arrow is snuffed out on the shield of faith. Now there is an alternative to God's word. And here's where we get into trouble, Christian. The alternative to citing the words of God, as when we wield that sword, the alternative is our own rationalizations. Eve said, ooh, that fruit will make me smart. That was her own rationalization. She did not say, God said, don't eat it, because in the day that you do, you will die. She didn't say that. She said, ooh, that will make me smart. She listened to Satan when he said, you know, you're going to be just like God. She goes, yeah, I will be just like God. And because she rationalized, instead of quoting the scripture and clinging to the scripture, she fell. 
Some people rationalize by saying, we're in love. It's good enough. Or, I've already sinned. I'm spoiled goods. It won't matter. Or, just a little bit. I think I can control it this time. Or, I really deserve this happiness. Or, I'm sure it'll work out this time for the best. You see, you can rationalize all day long and Satan is happy because your thoughts go hand in hand with his thoughts. It is only the word of God, not just memorized, but remembered and applied and walked in that is living and powerful. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, made a vivid comment. The moment we leave the positive commands of God and begin to parlay with sin... Parlay is a term for sword fighting. Da, 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 da. He says, the moment we leave the positive commands of God and begin to parlay with sin on our own, that moment we are gone. It is as if a man should throw away his sword and use his naked hands only in meeting the enemy. He says, it just, just, just imagine the Roman soldier who takes off all of his armor and he says, I think I can handle him myself. And the guy comes with a sword, boom, you're dead. That's what happens when you put down your sword. When you, you will not have a way to defend yourself. John MacArthur commented this, Christians who rely simply on their experience of salvation and their feelings to get them through are vulnerable to every sort of spiritual danger. They get into countless compromising situations and they fall prey to innumerable false ideas and practices simply because they're ignorant of the specific teaching of Scripture. There's been much made in the last 20 years about spiritual warfare. And one idea that's been real popular is that of binding Satan. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. That sounds really spiritual. It's nowhere in the Scripture. God never tells us to try to control Satan. He says, take your feet that have the gospel and plant them down in and hold up the shield of faith with all the other armor and then take the word of God. And if he gets in real close, give him one of those. Now, here's what you got to know, Christian. You are not going to kill the devil. Now, I know that may be a revelation to some of you. You will not do anything that will stop him from attacking again. But what you will do if you put on all this armor and you wield the sword of the Spirit is you will outlast him. He will go away. What happened with Jesus? He, he went, temptation, temptation, temptation. Gone it, and he left. That's what can happen for you. If you resist him steadfast in the faith, the scripture says. Be sober, be vigilant. He's looking for you. Now you resist him steadfast in the faith. Our obedience to God's word. It's not the words of our mouth that bind the devil. It's not the words of our mouth that do anything to him. It's our stance in God's truth and in God's way that he can't get past. He just, there's just nothing he can do. But he'll shoot those flaming arrows, and it will scare you sometimes. Here's the question as we close this sermon today. Are you as skillful at using the scripture as a soldier would be using a knife to defend himself? What would you think of the soldier who goes into battle? Who, who He's got a knife, but 
Maybe he's never even seen one in his life. Let's just imagine. And nobody in boot camp said, here's what you do. You know, if you run out of bullets and the enemy comes in, you pull that dude out and stick him right in his belly, you know, or whatever they teach him to do. And, and so, you know, here comes the enemy and he goes, well, what in the world, you know? I wonder what this is for. Well, that's kind of a, a, a foolish exaggeration, but he's obviously got to be trained. And he's got to have a certain amount of confidence because if he doesn't have confidence that he can protect himself, when he sees the enemy come, and his primary urge will be to run. And ultimately, the enemy is going to catch up with him. So you and I need to be skillful with the words of God. Do you know what a sword drill is? How many of you know what a sword drill is? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you, here's what a sword drill is. I don't know if they still do these in Sunday school. Probably ought to, I suppose. We did them when I was a kid. One to teach people how to find the books of the Bible. And so they'd have sword drills. So they'd say, here, we're going to hold our Bible up, and then I'm going to say a verse, and you're going to look for it. And the first one, you know, gets to be the best, you know, because you, you found it. Maybe we're going to give a little prize. Okay? I'll tell you what, we're going to have a sword drill today. And... Uh, the prize is going to be this. We're going to have a prize. The prize is going to be a free book from our little bookstore over here. You can pick anything out you want, okay? So, get your, get your sword out. And the way you have, to, you have to close your Bible, no putting a finger like in Habakkuk or something like that. <laughs> and you've got to hold it up. And I'm going to say the verse and then go, and then you start looking it up. And as soon as you get it, you stand up. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Hezekiah 2.4. Everybody who put their Bible down loses. Because there is no book of Hezekiah, is there? What was Hezekiah? He was a king, that's right. Now, I, I know that's a simple thing, and that's not, it's not nearly as important to know whether or not there was a book of Hezekiah is to actually know some truth. But I'm telling you, if you don't even know the names of the books of the Bible... Maybe you haven't spent enough time practicing with the sword. Yes. <laughs> well, there were a few who knew. Yeah, she's my daughter, so she's not getting none of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I expected some of you would 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 uh, do that. So we'll have a drawing later. So. Now, what's it going to take for you to wield the sword skillfully? What will it take? For you to wield the sword skillfully. Number one, you've got to read the Word of God. You've got to read the Word of God. Give attention to the reading of the Word of God, First Timothy 4.13 says. You cannot know it if you don't read it. Don't give me an excuse for not reading the Word of God. If you do not have a regular habit of spending time in the Word, you have put the sword down, and when the temptations come, you can't possibly defend yourself. It's not going to happen. Not only have you put the sword down, you've taken off the shield of the, the breastplate of righteousness. You don't know how to act. You don't know how to think. You don't know how to talk in those hard situations. You've got to put all of this on, and the key is here. It's here. And you've got to read it. You don't have to go to seminary, be some great scholar of something, but you've got to read the Word of God. Number two, you've got to meditate on it. Meditate means to think about it, to, to grasp it, if you will. 
Psalm 1 verse 2 says, In God's law, the the, the righteous man meditates day and night. And that psalm says the result is that he's going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He's going to be strong. He's going to be stable. He's going to be maturing. You need to meditate. And one of the best ways to meditate is to memorize. The reason I want you to memorize Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18 is so you can think about it when you don't have a Bible in your hand. You could be driving to work going... um, Put on the, the waistband of truth. God, help me to live in your truth today. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. God, help me to act right today when I'm at work. God, you know that person is so mean at work. Help me to treat them like Jesus would, and so on. If this is in your mind, you can meditate. You can reflect on it. Number three, study it. There, you know... Uh, Frankly, the reason I'm able to preach is because you pay me so I can sit in that office and really get into the Word and spend the hours in it. And uh, I would venture a guess that if I don't spend the hours in it, you'll know it because it'll be kind of thin and pasty when I preach it up here. You need to study it too. Maybe you don't have the hours I have, but do you have one hour? Could you get one Bible study book that might help unfold the Scripture a little more? Could you come to Sunday school? We're studying it in my Sunday school class. We're getting into the nuts and bolts, and we're working it over. And, and there's classes for different ages. And, uh, you know, could you do that? Could you come to a small group at my house on Thursday night or, or at uh, the Hubbard's house on Wednesday night and get in and, and, and chew over it and work it over and increase your understanding? The question is not to say how much time, but the question is, is my understanding of God's Word growing? See, the more you grow, the, the, the more you can handle and then the lastly, and, and just as important as the others, is obey, obey. This is not something that you stick in your head. It's something you get into your head so it can get out into your hands and feet and eyes and ears. Hebrews 5 says, By this time you ought to be teachers. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody else to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled. In talking about milk, he's talking about things like salvation. He's saying, well, you know, you know the doctrine of salvation, but you haven't really proceeded on to really grasp the, the more challenging truths of God. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The more you use God's word to discern good and evil, the stronger you will get to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now maybe there will be stronger temptations, but you'll be able to be stronger. And someday, if you keep doing that, you'll look around and somebody will come to you and they'll say, how do you do it? And you'll go, are you talking to me? Because right now, you can look around in Christianity, maybe in this church, and see some people and think, boy, those people are strong. How do they do it? They did it by exercising their senses day after day after day after day. And when you pile up those little pieces of maturity and those little pieces of spiritual exercise, you can become strong in God. What a marvelous thing. Who would you rather have fly in the plane? A fellow who has been spending hours on the flight simulator game 
or the man or woman who spent hundreds, even thousands of hours actually flying the plane. The fellow this week that was flying the plane, I forget how many thousand hours they said he has in flying, and he used to be an F-4 fighter pilot before that. And, uh, and I thought, that's the guy I want flying my airplane. I don't, I don't want some beginner. Christian, you can be strong in the Lord. No mystery here, just some hard work. Heavenly Father, help us to put the armor on. Help us to live in that armor day by day. Help us. Help us see those flaming arrows. Help us to recognize them for what they are. Help us to defend ourselves with all that armor that you've given us. Make us strong in you. Honor yourself, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.